So yeah, babies are born with original sin. And what, I mean, that might be a good way to, to thing to ask. What is original sin? There are, they are over there. I'm about to email yours to Linda. And so I guess you asked the question of what, what differentiates original sin from actual sin. Um, why is it important to make a, to make a distinction? Sin that's carried with us from Adam. Yeah, and so what does that mean? It's, a, it's, it's sin that everybody everybody's born with, and it has, and it has to be uh, dealt with. Right. Um, and one of the ways that you talk, you can see original sin is I think we, I think did we mention this last week that babies are capable of dying, which is kind of a. a strange thing to say. It sounds almost too morbid, but that is, of course, the case. And if you follow Paul's logic in Romans, that's, that death is actually not the original intent of creation, but that death came about through sin. So death itself is kind of like an alien invasion into God's good world, almost like you have a perfectly running computer system, and then you have a virus or something that gets in and, and just destroys it from the inside out, and that ultimately... Um, ends in death. So we would say something along, you know, we would quote Psalm 51 and say, you know, in sin um, did my mother conceive me, um, that type of thing, that there is nobody who is conceived without original, well, Augustine takes it really literally that in the act of conception, the two participants, husband and wife, can't refrain from sinning, and therefore all acts of conception result in original sin. That's pretty extreme. (laughs) <laughs> in that way, um, we would just say that all human beings, because of the way uh, the way the entire world is now fallen, um, all human beings are given to, to sin. And that actual sin, actual committed sin, arises from a state of having original sin, the inclination sin. Now in the Eastern Church, so Eastern Orthodoxy, um, they will not talk about original guilt, which is kind of interesting. So I think well, how does I'll just pause there and ask? Does that strike anyone as different to talk about original sin versus original guilt? Linda, I can't find them. There it is. I the phrase "guilty by association." So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I am at in the womb at birth at conception. I am guilty sin that began with Adam and Eve, uh-huh. and one through ten when I become alive. So, right. <laughs> so that's why I say I'm guilty. Uh, association right and I and I think the pushback to that would be something like well that's not fair and I might agree <laughs> but just as it's not fair doesn't necessarily mean it's not true either right that is to say that that is um, this is not my page is crashing so um, it's not fair, but it also doesn't mean it's not true. And, of course, the evidence kind of bears that out. So Augustine, uh, I think I've mentioned Augustine on Original Sin said, the innocence of children is found in the weakness of their limbs. That is not powerful enough to do anything yet. And, of course, as a parent of a five-year-old and a two-year-old, that seems to be truer and truer because as soon as the two-year-old can fight back, she does, right? She, and the five-year-old is eager to old hats, right? Um, and as soon as there's another party to that kind of nature shows itself. As opposed to um, 
the romantic poets, I can't remember which poet it was, said something like children are born with with streams of light coming off of them. That is, children are born and are perfect and pure and holy, and it is the corrupting influence of the world. It is the second child who steals their stuff that makes them jaded and angry, and then they grow up not to expect anything. So if only... Uh, this would be kind of the, um, I think his name is Dewey, this kind of, if only our education systems could be um, so uh, perfected that they could not ruin kids, basically. <laughs> because kids aren't sinners in and of themselves, they don't have a sinful nature in and of themselves. The problem is society. The problem is the corrupting influence in their life. Of course, part of that's true, <laughs> pretty obviously. Um, those who grew up in traumatic situations, uh, broken families, those kinds of things, bear the scars of that and will tend to, uh, how do you say it, just in broad general strokes, tend to bear that out in their lives more. Um, but there is this whole distinction between are people born good or not? Are they born good and then corrupted by society is kind of a, a container to try and get rid of sinful influence as much as is possible. And how might you see that in the cultural conversations we have today? Might be another interesting question. Or even in politics. Which I shouldn't go down that road. <laughs> if that relates to politics and anybody's thinking or anybody would like to make a comment, feel free and I will try and not uh, say Well, in the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky says, if there's no sin, then there can be no crime. Right. In a lot of the utopian ideas coming from, that's being more and more proliferate in political discussions now, uh -huh. come from an atheist standpoint, where if there is no God, then there is nobody to say what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, if somebody walks into Walgreens and fills up their bags with, you know, whatever off the shelf and walks out, that's not stupid. Who are you to say that that is an act of right or wrong? So a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, utopian, crimeless society policies that people are trying to be put in place comes directly from an atheistic standpoint where there is no moral arbiter to say what is right and what is wrong. Right. Um. Why do Russians have all the best thoughts about this? So I mentioned, were you here for the sermon? I mentioned Solzhenitsyn. I was. Right, yeah. So Sol Solzhenitsyn grows up uh, in all these, his friends and neighbors put it, in, put it in the gulag in the, in the middle of Siberia, right? And he asked one of them, they say, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened, right? So with the revolution in 17, right, an explicitly atheistic state tries to get rid of all that. And then if you don't have, I mean, it's also kind of a common sense psychological perspective Life is really hard <laughs> in many and different ways. If you don't have uh, an afterlife, you're going to work as hard as you can to uh, make as, as utopian as possible now, um, right? And then uh, somebody's going to have to pay the price of that utopia, right? If there's a lot of people in, in a gulag or something. Um, on the to, to, to play the other side of the argument, people would say, well, yeah, that's the same justification that Christians used for slaveholding in this country to say, listen, you have to, to, to do what you are meant to do to be a slave, and then your reward will be eternal. So you don't want to play that argument too strongly either. 
Um, but it does, I think, influence some of our political discussions, whether or not you think people are perfectible or that something like uh, a perfect and just society is, is um, attainable. I'll put it that way. Anyway, any other thoughts? And Linda, I might, this is not uh, working. Can you still hear us? That's not good, yeah, sure. right? That doesn't look very good at all. There's something going on with, uh, yeah. If you can hear us clap once, do it like kindergarten. If you can hear us clap twice, what's, yeah. See again now, you know. Can you imagine what? What are they talking about? Some kind of solar flare that could happen and knock out all electronics, and we'd all just be. I mean, there'd be no power, there'd be no heat, nothing to run. I don't know how much food we have in the church to survive. And, you know. Well, this is no good. Um, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two. Well, any other, uh, so yeah, babies are original sinners. And there's a few Bible passages to go along with that. Augustine really develops that kind of, that kind of theology when he's fighting the, the Pelagians, and, and Pelagius is a bishop who says, no, people are born fundamentally good and able to make the choice for themselves to follow God. And he would say, no, uh, ultimately God has to kind of be God and be the first actor and be the one active in, in saving any thoughts, comments, questions about about that? Well, Daryl said, you know, about being inherited is in here too. Yeah, what page? Yeah, and then it says, how does original sin affect every human creature? It means that every person is now born without the ability to fear and love God. Right. We are spiritually blind and dead. Right, and so the, the image of God, whatever the image of God means in the book of Genesis, God made man in his image. Part of that is our original righteousness and our relationship with, with God. And so what's lost primarily is not our ability to do good or something like that, which, you know, even atheists do good, right? And you don't want to draw the lines too far. But it's our relationship to God. And that also we don't know... I mean, this has been my experience, and maybe I'm just... <laughs> maybe I'm just a worse person, right? But But the longer I've been a Christian, the more I look at my own motives and I kind of see, oh yeah, that, when I did that, that was really about me, or that was getting attention for this, or I had mixed motives on, on this thing. So there's actually kind of an increasing skepticism that I would have about myself and my motives, but you kind of just abandon that and leave it to Christ, and you do your job, you know, you do your vocation that God's given to you to do, and you try and uh, not worry so much about whether part of it's sinful or coming from a sinful motivation, because God's going to forgive that all anyway, and you don't fully know and recognize everything that's that goes on in your heart and mind. Um, so we'll get to that tonight in confession where it says, see, now it wants me to re-sign into Zoom. And I hope I remember my password. This is always... Yes, okay. All right, um, any other questions about baptism? And even though the Eastern Orthodox have a different view and call it original guilt and not original sin, they might even kind of soften it 
because um, it's not as though how do you even say it? It's not as though children have as fully developed as a will as we adults do. But once they do, they t- tend to rebel for the fun of it. At least my kids do. Maybe maybe all kids don't. I don't know. Um, I am sorry, Linda. Something about trying to send you that email crashed my computer and I had to restart it. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay. Now, now I see you. And yeah, I was didn't get an email. No. You froze up. You froze up completely, and then yes. disappeared. And then I restarted my uh, my computer. So she's back. She's back. All right, we're good. All right. Well, I'm gonna send you. I'll read the entire uh, the entire PDF. Or you know what, Linda, I can do one better, and I can screen share it just so you can see it. Um, okay. On your Either on way. yes, that'll hopefully not crash my uh, computer again. Um, so, uh, we're talking about... I'll just listen to everything in the recording that I missed. There we go. Okay. Very good. So, um, we were talking then about uh, confession tonight, which is going to be one of the um, ways in which Lutherans will be a little bit different uh, than, than other Protestants. Man, you remember back in the day before COVID when nobody knew what Zoom was and it didn't crash your computer? How about that? That would have been quite the deal. Um, Maybe I need a computer that's better able to handle recording and doing Zoom and doing other stuff at the same time. There we go. All right. Uh, so that's going to be one of the ways that, that Lutherans are different than other Protestants is there's still uh, a higher emphasis on confession and absolution. Now, as you think about that, as you all know, our services start every every week by having a general confession and absolution. I've not been to many other Protestant services. Um, do other churches that you've all been to at one point or another have a kind of confession and absolution, or is it um, something something different, I should say? Or do they start in a different manner? I guess at the churches I was at, they didn't really have one. Okay. So it usually began with a, a hymn and then um, yeah, yeah. some and kind then, of... You know, the creeds. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Like a greeting, I remember that from Catholic Church. Where I don't. It was like a standard greeting. Right. That they read, so it wasn't anything like. Yeah. Standard greeting. It wasn't getting up and, and shaking everybody's hand. Do no. people like that? The no. whole get up and. <laughs> no. We shouldn't introduce that. No, no. <laughs> definitely Meet not. your neighbor and okay. shake their hand yeah. and no. call it a day. No, that's awkward and it's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it makes newcomers feel really out of place. That's a good point. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's designed okay. to welcome them, but it has the opposite effect. Interesting. Okay. You know, before COVID, we had that, and it was hard, hard to get people to go and sit down again. <laughs> yeah, yeah that yeah. that is kind of the problem. Yeah. It, it can break up your service in such a way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I just like I don't, I'm not a germaphobe, but I don't like people forcing me to shake hands or otherwise touch other people. So right, it just doesn't feel right. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, well, on the advice of everyone here, we won't be bringing that back to the Lord of Life anytime <laughs> soon. And saying, stand up and shake your neighbor's hand. Um, so we we begin every every Sunday with confession and absolution, and there's a reason for that. Of course, there's a reason for all of the liturgy. I finally got it up, Linda, so I can finally uh, share my screen and make it work, I think. 
How about that? Okay. Only took us 30 minutes to get there, and here we are. Oh, wait, we don't see her, will we? I can bring her over here, I think. If the magic of technology will let me do it. There's, there you guys are. Yeah. There it is. There we go. All right, look at that. Great, good deal. Thank you. Um, well, I don't know why she's small up there, but I'm not going to try and fix that problem tonight. Um, so we start every Sunday with confession and absolution. Now, uh, it used to be, of course, on Luther's Day that there was no such general corporate, the entire body, the church body, um, confessing together. It was all individual, right? And so when they start, I don't even know how you talk about it, in the 1520s, of course, in 1517, Luther does the 95 thesis bit. Uh, anybody been to Germany and done the Luther Luther tour? Yes. Have you been to the Castle Church where he... And there's some debate historically as to whether or not he actually we nailed them. It, yeah. yeah, or if he <laughs> yeah. mailed them, or if he posted them, right. or he sent an email, or fired off a series of tweets. <laughs> Historians aren't sure what it was, but you can still go and see the door that it, that it was it was yeah. probably posted to. Like doors would serve as a kind of bulletin board, yeah. right? And so these were theses that were up for debate. And then in 1521, uh, he has the whole diet of worms. Here I stand. I can do no other. Um, I have socks that say here I stand on the bottom. Get it? Because, anyway. Uh, yeah, somebody gave those to me in 2017. It's, a, it's one of the lamer Lutheran jokes you can make. I got those there. in a stocking that year, too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> They're very, very funny, right? right. Here I stand. Yeah. It's so I think Brian has two pair that refer to that. Yeah, right, right, right. You can't, you can't miss it. So then, so then they're reforming. Uh, in 1529, Luther writes the catechisms that we that we use, of course. And in 1530, they release the Augsburg Confession, which is their confession before the princes saying, here's where we stand on all of these issues. One of them is confession. And they say, uh, confession in the churches is not abolished among us. And here's the connection to communion. The body of the Lord is not usually given to those who have not been examined and absolved. That is to say, they usually do not distribute communion to those who have not been examined, confessed, and then uh, absolved. The people are very carefully taught about faith in the absolution before there was profound silence about faith and the role of faith in receiving the absolution, the word of forgiveness. Uh, our people are taught that they should highly prize the absolution as being God's voice and pronounced by God's, God's command. Um, so this idea of confession and how you go about it is pretty important to the Reformation because Luther must have been a kind of nervous, twitchy fellow. Uh, and did you know that more books have been written about Martin Luther than any other person in history except for one, who is Jesus? <laughs> so it would be hard to unseat Jesus. Um, but more books have been written about Luther than, than anybody else. Uh, Not and by Luther, but about Luther. About Luther, okay. yes. Um, although he did write, I think, 93 volumes. Mm -hmm. Because even by 1519, 1521, people kind of saw the significance of what was going on. You know, if you look at our panoply of world leaders and celebrities and important individuals, who do you think they're still going to talk about in 500 years? I have no idea. <laughs> Um, probably Trump, although can you imagine being a historian and trying to figure out what happened 
and going through Trump's Twitter feed, all of that's going to be in a history textbook someday, right? And that's gonna Probably. you're gonna have to record that, and somebody's gonna have to decide what he was doing in many of those tweets. Was he serious? Was he distracted? I mean, it's gonna be a mess actually to figure it out. Um, even like it's kind of a mess for us to figure out the motivations of historical political figures now. Um, so Luther has so many things written about him because he is such an interesting figure. He changes so much. He comes along at the right time. Uh, there was a book just published this last summer called Martin Luther and OCD, I think. So, so this author that I've not read has a theory that Martin Luther had what we would today diagnose as obsessive compulsive disorder. And if you look at the, the, the literature, it's actually, there's a subcategory for OCD of religious scrupulosity. Have I talked about this? Where, you know, someone will cross themselves and they might be a centimeter to the left of the center of their chest. And so they got to do it again. And then they get stuck and their brain kind of gets locked and they get stuck in this pattern of having to having to do it. Well, Luther stays up all night, for example, confessing his sin to his father confessor, Johannes Bugenhagen, and having all of these problems, uh, thinking that he would never be forgiven, that he was forgetting all of his sins, because that was part of the, the instruction for confession, is you have to name every sin you ever committed. Um, so that's a little bit of his context as we'll, as we'll get to it. Uh, Here's a, 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 an interesting question. What actually counts as a sin? <laughs> that's, maybe that sounds really uh, like a silly question, I should say, but what actually is a, a sin? Okay, so, so yeah, so we confess sins of thought, word, and deed that even at the, even at the level of your thoughts, it is actually a sin. So what do you say, Sue? Oh, I was starting to say a willful act against Jesus or, or against God or another. Okay, yeah, so so interesting with the use of the word willful there. Some element of you is willing it, wanting it. And I think um, the Roman Catholics would say, and I think this is actually kind of helpful, they would make a distinction between, you know, a mortal sin and a venial sin. Well, if you're if you're my daughter and you're four years old and you see the cookie and I say don't eat the cookies and you just can't help yourself. <laughs> she's in control of her will but not as much as she will be later because she's she's not as old right. and she's not as mature and so you'd say well yeah I guess that's more of a venial sin. It's not as significant as the full engagement of your will um, but as we as Lutherans would say that's still a, a sin she was told not to do it. She knew she shouldn't have done it. Even if she perhaps couldn't have stopped herself. Right. right. Um, With uh, respect to thought. Yeah. Is thought that we have that are negative or sinful, is that something that, you know, is that something that we as humans can control? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> uh does anybody else want to take a stab at that? Or thoughts that we have that are negative, sinful? I, I think they may, you know, sometimes a thought will flash into your head and it leaves immediately. You think, how could I, like, how could that come in? That's such a terrible thing, like, yeah. right? But that, 
that is manifestation of an underlying sin. Like he, yeah. Like a, that kind of goes back to the original sin. Right. Like if right. You, if you just have that thought, it's a horrible thought, but you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Is that still somewhat of a sin? In Judaism, it is strictly sin is strictly behavior based. Right. If you think about killing somebody, you can write about killing somebody. You can think about it all night and all day, but unless you kill them, Actually. you have not sinned. You are not crossways with God. Right. And those thoughts. But that's not our understanding. Right. Are you thinking of Dennis Prager too? Yes. And the, yeah. Okay. His, yeah. <laughs> I, I modified his. Right. Right. Yeah. His. Well. Anyway, go for it, Sue. I'll. Um, I was gonna say, like, I I think thoughts that can be put there by Satan. Yeah, and I was gonna say when you said negative thoughts, that was actually the first place my mind went to is that Satan is actually the father of lies, and so negative thoughts that we have, you know, if somebody really thinks that they are worthless or they have no purpose, mm-hmm. is that you know. That's not direct. It's only directed at themselves, and they despise God's creation of them. Mm-hmm. That is, I guess, in one way, it's a sin, and it's to be repented of. But it's my. It's maybe. Hopefully, nobody wills that thought or right. wants to think that. Right. That's just yeah. thoughts we get caught in in a, in a negative, uh, in a world that is in some way Satan has some power and is trying to tear people from God's truth, right? Um, but if we if we do dwell on thoughts or ruminate on them, and especially if they're destructive thoughts like that, um, I don't even know if that's sin. It's just a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and sins, if you if you dwell on sin and in, in, in your thought life, eventually it'll probably become word. It'll probably become a deed. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody saw this Dennis Prager video, but they were talking about the book of Exodus and what counts as adultery. Right, and so Jesus says, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, that it's the same as committing adultery. And and Dennis Prager, who is a, is a Jewish conservative uh, commentator type guy, he'd say, no, in Judaism, um, you 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 can only commit adultery by actually sleeping with the woman. Right, there is no kind of lust of the eyes that counts. Right, um, and we believing in Jesus would have a very different understanding. I think his point is that there is so much. Uh, psychological damage and shame that can be done because you can't control uh, your thoughts all the time and you may have impure thoughts or whatever that just come up out of nowhere right um, but I think what I would say to, to him and, I, and Matt Frad, who's a Catholic guy he had him on his podcast and I thought did a very good job of, of rebutting some of what Prager said um, you can't treat sin casually at the surface symptom level right it always has a deep deep root and that deep deep root is what needs to be repented of ultimately right so if I I mean and if I steal something you know what's really the root of that theft could be any number of things it's probably in some ways discontented with what God's given to me right um I can't remember where this was. Some monk or some nun was talking about it, and she was talking about people out in the, out of the monastery, out of the is it called a nunnery? That sounds convent, so old. convent cloister, yeah, something like that. Nunnery sounds <laughs> rude, almost right. I don't know if that sounds like some kind of Protestant jibe at Roman Catholics. So they're all in nunnery type of thing. But they were. She was talking about how you know you all in the real world think you deal with sins. We deal with the real sins here in the convent. We deal with pride. <laughs> we deal with discontent. We deal with all of those internal, the real root of um, root of everything. 
How did we get there? What counts as sin? So even in the early church, there are really three sins. Um, adultery, murder, and uh, what's the third one? Oh, apostasy, leaving faith. Leaving faith. Um, so they're not so they're not so concerned with uh, everything in kind of a mental way that we might be. And there's a whole boy, we could talk for hours. There's a whole theory that says Augustine messed this all up because uh, Augustine made it all about our thoughts. And Augustine was so modern in how he thought and you kind of read him and he does sound very modern. He focused on the interior life. And so people will say, Prager would probably say even for Christians, Augustine kind of screwed it up. Um, I think that's just a human experience of having this internal struggle. Uh, but the three main sins that would, that would mean you may not be a part of the church are adultery, um, apostasy and, and murder right and so then confession kind of develops as a way to reaffirm them as a part of the community uh, and have as some people say second plank onto the ship of of the church right so I can't remember who it is the idea is that salvation is the, the, the church is like a big ship which is why we still call sanctuaries naves right nave naval a ship. Ours doesn't do it so much, but some churches you can look up and you can really see how it looks like you're in a ship and the world is kind of uh, the, the water around you. Um, so some would say, okay, baptism is the first plank by which you are brought onto the ship of the Church of Grace. And then confession then is the second plank after you really screw up <laughs> in one way or another, then you can be brought back again onto onto the ship. So, um, I'll pause. Thoughts, comments, questions there. Would you administer confession, like, in a one-on-one -on -one scenario like the Roman Catholics would do if somebody asked for it? Yes. Does anybody ever ask for it? Not in my ministry yet. Um, where do we have a hymnal? Do we not have a hymnal? Let me grab a hymnal and I'll pass it around the right. So, we do, uh, have it in our hymnal. Two ninety-two there, so individual confession and absolution. So um, yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as we get through the, the handout about the difference. Um, has anybody ever gone to confession, individual confession in the Lutheran Church? Yeah. Not, not yet. Not, no, not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> when you said Lutheran Church, I was like, have you gone to confession? Yes, every week at the Catholic Church, but no. Right. So what, um, let me ask it this way. What was your experience, as much as, you, or as much or as little as you want to share, what was your experience of going to confession in a Catholic context? You know, when it first started out, it was the priest in, inside the box. Uh -huh. And then, like, high school, if you wanted to, you could go face-to-face. Okay. So there was always a division, and then the little screen goes across, and you know you say, "Father, forgive me for I have sinned," and then the priest says, "Go ahead," and then you confess whatever's gone on. Right. But later, it became more. I, I became very involved in like in college and high school and Catholic organizations, and it became more of a talk with the okay. priest, you know, because you would come to likes, not like, but 
understand certain priests and you felt more comfortable, sure, so sure. you would talk face to face. So my experience to go on from the screen to a relational one uh -huh. with with whatever priest I was talking to. Sure. So I don't know if that helps with if that's what you're looking for. It does, and I would almost tend to say that something like that becomes not not strictly confession absolution, but almost spiritual direction. Yes. Which is yes. good, but I yes. think is is different because if I'm if, if we're doing individual confession and absolution, I'm absolving you. Um, something in particular. Of something in particular, yeah. you don't want me to make that contingent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's kind of the risk of, of maybe making it too close between right. the spiritual direction. Which, which was part of the problem in Luther's day, is that instead of, you know, they'd say, you're absolved, now say 10 Hail Marys mm -hmm. or whatever. Or give and a then, certain amount of money or something. Or give a certain amount of money, yeah. right? And yeah. so Luther, as a very faithful monk who did all of his work, was actually very angry that people could get out of all of the spiritual good work, like saying the Hail Marys yeah. and whatever else, by just paying money. Mm -hmm. Come on, mm -hmm. just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you don't need to pray, <laughs> right? That, that type of thing. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, I've done I've done a lot of individual confession and absolution because I need it right, <laughs> um, but it's it's a really good practice if there's things that are bothering you. I mean the general absolution was good, but we didn't have that in the church service until at some point in the 19th century, and it used to be the pattern was you would come for um, private confession, individual confession uh, on a Saturday and then come to church on Sunday. So in addition to our four-and-a-half-hour Sunday schedule that we'll be instituting soon, we'll also be doing Saturday morning confession, right, and that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, but it is, it is good, right, if there's something that's really bothering somebody, and I should make it uh, clear that I'm available for that type of thing. And, of course, that's what often happens in pastoral counseling situations anyway. Someone will confess their sin, and you'll forgive them, right? Um, but that's just a more formal way to, to go about it. I'm reading with interest. Um, if you are not burdened with particular sins, do not trouble yourself or search for or invent other sins, thereby turning confession into a torture. So, yes. Because as a child, you invented sins. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Everybody see this? Um, There's a short form of confession in the small catechism yes. on page 312. So if you have your catechism on page 312, uh, and I believe this is actually not for, uh, yeah, um, this is uh, pretty similar to what we have in our hymnal, right? So, um, yeah, so this is included in the, in the small catechism itself, that one of them that Luther writes. And it's, it says there in LSB as well. Um, so a good way, I mean, in general, psychologically, I mean, it's a good way to acknowledge that we're part of the problem. Has anybody heard the, the G.K. Chesterton quote? Somebody wrote to G.K. Chesterton, great Catholic band, and said, what's going on in the world? How can things be so messed up? What's really the problem here? And he wrote back and said, Dear sir, I am. <laughs> right? So there's a way of acknowledging your culpability and the problems of, of, of the world and that you're not um, you're not entirely free from, from guilt uh, in all of that. So that's a, a helpful way to confess. And of course, um, he has different kind of uh, 
manuals to follow. You know, you follow the table of duties. Am I a, am I a husband? Am I a wife? Am I a father? Am I a mother? Am I a master of a house? Do I have these employees? What ways have I not done right by, by them? And, those, and then thinking of how, uh, what you might specifically have to confess. Um, now, do you need to confess every sin? Well, there's no way you can, right? And Luther thinks he's supposed to, and that that drives him crazy. If you look at, guess uh, because he's OCD. <laughs> yeah, and I got to get that book and read that. I'm interested because you think about some of these figures, and of course, on the one hand, it's very anachronistic to say Luther had OCD. They just wouldn't have described it like that. And and what does that mean? But maybe he actually did. I don't know. You know, I, or something that we would describe as religious scrupulosity, OCD. But we would also say that if he did, then that led him to a greater understanding of the gospel, right? Um, and there's a, there's a whole theory about, there's no way, have, have we talked about vitamin D in the Reformation? No. <laughs> there's this whole theory that the, the Reformation really takes hold in the northern countries, like the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, Finland, and then Germany, and it doesn't so much in Italy and other places, in Spain, um, which are still, you know, largely Catholic to this day, because Luther didn't get enough sunshine, and it was snowy, and he was depressed, and he was sad about that. And that could be true for all I know, right? How would you ever prove or disprove that, right? Um, so that's that's the vitamin, yeah, if anybody asks if you know the vitamin D theory of the Reformation, now, now you can share that, or you can go to... Go to Yaya's, right, Sue? Exactly. Brian's favorite place, yeah. and then yeah. and then talk about sure. that. But uh, 4B, can you name all of your sins? Um, our churches teach that naming every sin is not necessary, and that consciences should not be burdened with worry about naming every sin. It is impossible to recount all sins. As Psalm 19.12 testifies, who can discern his errors? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? If only sins that can be named are forgiven, consciences could never find peace. For many sins cannot be seen or remembered. And again, to be fair, to be fair to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, if a sin is a discrete act of the will that is not confined to the level of thought, then we all probably sin a lot less than we currently think we do, right? If a sin is if a sin is a thought or a thought that's ruminated on a little bit too long, um, like, oh, I really hate the Colorado Buffaloes because they've beaten us the last three times. <laughs> I hold this great animosity in my heart toward them. And I dwell on that hatred. Well, then it becomes a sin. At what line, right? What's the line between just being disappointed that we lost and actively hating my, my neighbor in Colorado? I don't know, right? And so... You've got. You might have a lot to a lot to think about. Potentially, a lot to confess. Um, so you say that naming every sin is not necessary, which is what part of what Luther was taught. You need to name every sin, and unless it's named, it cannot properly be forgiven. Well, that's kind of terrifying, right? Um, moreover, it would run across the grain or against the grain of what Paul teaches about the true freedom of the gospel and the freedom from the law, and to think that. God actually wants people to be free in the healthiest sense of that word, that is to be freed from their preoccupations with themselves and truly free to live in Christ and serve their neighbor. Right? Um, 
so one of the strange things about how human beings do good works is often we'll do good things to prove ourselves to other people, right? That everything becomes a kind of show uh, and a kind of demonstration of our righteousness, right? And that's, of course, what Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, uh, that, that they want to pray on street corners in order to be seen, that type of thing. And he says that they're whitewashed tombs, um, right? And part of the Lutheran emphasis on, on justification being right with God by grace through faith is to kind of rid yourself of all of that and you're really free, right? You don't need to prove anything uh, to anyone else and you're actually really and truly uh, free. So if there's one thing that Luther wrote, I didn't realize tonight it would be such a Luther night, um, that's not the small catechism that I would commend to you is freedom of a Christian from 1520. Um, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all master to all. So it really captures the kind of paradoxical heart of of the Christian life. Okay. Um, thoughts, comments, questions? I'm just looking at um, sins cannot be seen and just wondering what people think that means. I Like be seen by who? Well, I think think it would be seen by by even yourself okay so I don't I don't want to be too too modern about it because they were they were medieval people in 1530 but I think there's a sense and everyone knows this of self-deception and you can people can people do truly genuinely believe they're doing the right thing and yet it brings inestimable harm to themselves and others so back to the thought of creating utopia right well if if the ends justify any means. We can run over whoever we want in the process, and because this is where we're going, it doesn't matter how we get there. And I think sometimes we tend to think that that people, to use the, the most dramatic example, that someone like Hitler is is evil and knows it and just wicked and loves being wicked, or does he at least at one time actually believe? that the German state was harmed by the Treaty of Versailles and that the Jews are to blame for them losing World War I and that it would really be better for the German people, his people, it's the Austrians too, right, mm -hmm. if they didn't have the Jews anymore, right? Now that's, what's that law? Is it Godwin's law? That anytime anyone argues on the internet, eventually someone will compare the other person to Hitler, right? <laughs> that's not very helpful to do that. But I do think you can see the same thing with self-deception and saying everyone's capable of doing that in one way or another. Linda, were you saying something? Are you frozen again? No. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, will, I will say something. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I uh, often go to the Christian Cyclopedia at uh, Luther Church, Missouri Synod website. Yeah. And I just did that just to see what it said about sin, if they defined it, which uh -huh. they did in a short paragraph, which is a good place to go, especially if you're uh, not familiar with Lutheran beliefs and, you know, doctrines and stuff to get a little clarification you want to hear it or yes not. absolutely read it out yeah I'd love to hear it okay. Um, okay uh sin transgression of God's law and then there'll be some references throughout this um biblical you know which I'll skip over yeah sin may sin may be divided into original sin 
an actual sin. Actual sin, and in parentheses, every act, thought, emotion, for example, lust, close parentheses, conflicting with God's law, may be involuntary or may be done ignorantly, and includes sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins arouses God, sin arouses God's righteous wrath and deserves his punishment. Willful sin sears conscience. Repeated, it hardens the heart, may lead to, but is not identical with, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. Can we that? To see the unpardonable and see also apple of Sodom. Yeah. I don't know what unpardonable sin against holy, the Holy Spirit is. Right. Myself. Yeah. The apostasy. Yeah, and I would even say more apostasy at the time of death. So. Um, Jesus says all sins will be forgiven them except for the sin against the Holy Spirit. And we would say even then, sin against the Holy Spirit would be rejection of, of faith at even at the time of death is, is unforgivable. Because if somebody rejects their faith for a time and comes to faith, well, that previous rejection was forgiven. But that apostasy then uh, leaving the faith at the time of death. So so this this idea of willful sin, yeah. So, so uh, boy, that's actually a very good definition. Involuntary and what was the other I word they used? In, even in ignorance, ignorantly, yeah, maybe involuntary or maybe done ignorantly, right? And include sins of commission and omission, which can kind of keep you up at night, right? Since okay, if, if sin can be done involuntarily and ignorantly, how would I know? That's the problem with self deception. How would you know, right? By the very definition of you being self deceived about something, um, but then the, the so then involuntary and ignorant sin, if you legitimately don't know something is wrong or you've never been taught, that will not, how do you put it, it won't damage your soul in the same way that, as, as that definition said, willful sin that will lead to the searing of the conscience and the hardening of the heart and will potentially lead to, but is not yet identifiable with the rejection of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Thank you, Linda. That's, that is quite good. And yeah, Christian encyclopedia is on. Uh, it was I can't remember when it was written. It's a whole encyclopedia about Christian terms that sin and produced at some point. It's all all online. So if you Google it, it'll all show up. So, God, sorry. Um, I was always well from like the the Bible studies, like the Cogs group and things. I was mm -hmm. always thought that if you reject the Holy Spirit once, there was no coming back. And I'm happy to hear you say that people who leave, not just leave the, uh, the faith, but reject, yeah. basically reject God, reject the Spirit. Mm -hmm. There was not even, an, there was not a chance that they could come back. Really? I'd be interested to know what, um, what, context, what context that, context was. that yeah. was. Yeah. There's a, a, a line from the book of Hebrews that kind of makes it sound like if you're baptized and you sin, Egregiously, kind of in the, the early church definition of it, you know, something like adultery, apostasy, or murder, yeah. adultery, leaving the faith, or murder, that you cannot come back. Yeah. And they actually argue about that in in the two in the two fifties with the Diocletian persecution. There are those pastors and leaders of the church who actually hand over the scriptures, and it's not like our day and age where we have so many Bibles we don't know what to do with them. 
I have 30 in my office right now. Right. The Bible was handwritten. They might only have one copy for the entire church. So if you just gave it over to the authorities, there was a real question about whether or not you could come back. Okay. <laughs> but eventually they decide okay. that yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that sin is forgivable and forgiven. James? You said something about Paul earlier, which I feel like I was had my thoughts pretty clearly tonight and then that threw a wrench in everything. Um, if Jesus' life was one long, perfect human sacrifice that fulfilled God's covenant with the Hebrews, uh-huh. and he fulfilled the law so that we no longer live under the law, we live under the gospel. Yeah. Right? Uh, we have life in Christ, a new covenant. Yeah. Then why is it theologically consistent to still define sin as a infraction of the Hebrew law, the Ten Commandments? That is a very good question, um, and I would I would say the kind of classic way to answer that is to say the moral law of the Old Testament is separate from the ceremonial law and separate from the ritual law. So you have the moral law. Um, which would include, but is not limited to, the Ten Commandments. And you have the ceremonial law about about you know feasts and festivals, that that kind of law that you have to keep. And then you have the ritual law about about the temple and everything that you do in terms of the the, the um, sacrifice and everything else. Uh, so that would be one. That's one way people solve it is to say, well, the moral law is still intact. Now Lutherans are going to be tricky, and there's going to be different Lutherans on this. Some, well, boy, did we talk about the third use of the law, right? Did we talk about that in this class? Third, three uses? Yeah, the third, third uses. Mirror so guide, yeah. Third mirror guide, right? Some Lutherans will say there is no third use of the law because of what Paul says, we are freed from the law. You just live in the gospel now. That's fine, except uh, in general, well, societies always need order. I guess that'd be the first use of the law. Um, Jesus also pretty clearly teaches us what to do, but you can only know Jesus as your teacher if you first received him as gift, if you first received him as your savior. So once you've been freed from the law, then you really follow the two laws of love God and love your neighbor, right? So we're not, I've had, I've heard pastors, I don't know how helpful it is to say that, to say, you no longer have to follow the Ten Commandments. You're in Christ, you're freed from the law. Don't follow the Ten Commandments. <laughs> wow. You can say that. I'm not even sure that's helpful because if you're in Christ, you're not going to disobey the Ten Commandments. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, um, at the very beginning, we, we kind of talked about original sin and the physical act of dying as a proof, evidence that there is sin in the world. Yeah. Right? So if, if you can define the absence of sin as just like living, walking with God as Adam and Eve did before the fall. Uh-huh. Right, absence of sin in the world. Right. Then it it's like an evangelical talking point. You could hear the pastor say, like, living in Jesus is being without sin, and sin is separation from God. Right. Uh-huh. So right. Right. then a sin can be defined as anything that takes you further away from God, or walking with God, or living in Jesus. But the problem with that is you can't define what it is. Like, there's no list of enumerated. These are the things that take you away from Jesus. Right. And, and, and in a perfect world, once we're restored in the resurrection, you won't need to follow lists. 
but in this life, even though we're completely new creatures in Christ, we still have the old Adam within us that needs to know things, right? That is, we don't perfectly yet by nature just love God and love our neighbor, right? So even though we're freed from the law, that's almost kind of a now, not yet, that's pointing forward to our final reality of resurrection. And while we're still here on this earth, we still have both saint and sinner within us, and we need to, something to restrain the old Adam. Yeah, Daryl? I'm kind of a simple guy. <laughs> but I'm free from the law, meaning I'm free from having to maintain the law perfectly to achieve my salvation. Right. Because I live in the gospel, and to James's point, Christ Jesus fulfilled that for me. So yeah. I'm, I'm still a sinner, and I still... The ten, I fail every day, but I'm free from having to maintain it on my own account to gain my salvation because Christ right. did it for me. Right. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. I'm so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts, comments, questions? We have. We'll just try and run through the next about five to ten minutes. We'll just run through um, a few things about confession. There's a good. There's a good quote there. Um, and the problem is now we no longer go to confession; we go to we go to church, <laughs> and confession is not uh, is not something separate, um, and maybe it should be. I don't know. I, I'm kind of a two minds a little bit on on. Oh, that. I, I go to confession when we have that little bit of time. That says uh, to examine yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. It's yeah. So simple. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I. I I'll be honest with you. I used to spend more time walking around figuring out how many sins I had. When you were Catholic? Yeah. 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 And, 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 inst- and now it's like, I'm not going to spend that much time because God's provided his son to take care of that, and I'm going to have joy about that right? instead of walling around in this pit. Right, you right. Know? And you're a, you, yeah, you'd be a good Lutheran to do that, right? Um, and I think that you also have to kind of account for uh People's, I'll put it this way, people's differing sensitivities, mm-hmm. that some people's consciences are more burdened than others. Like, And Luther was obviously one of those. And so Luther needed to have the kind of individual one-on-one assurance of his salvation in a way that not everybody maybe needs it to have it like that all the time, right? Um, and of course he was raised in a different context that probably affected. Maybe he had OCD, right? Yeah. Throw that in there. Yeah, Sue? Two questions. First, um, what is Confession 20, I think if I know my Roman numerals, what is Confession 29, 25? Oh, oh, that should be, that's supposed to be on the previous line, Augsburg Confession 25. Okay. So that's the document from 1530. Okay. Um, yeah. You didn't know what that was. And Isn't it interesting that Confession both means a positive statement of faith or confession of faith, like right. a creed? And also yeah. confessing sins. It it's what do they call that when two words mean they're it, cognates? Yeah. That the fess fess means something that you say, like a right. professor comes from the same. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but then what's what what happens when you have it's not homonyms, two words that sound the same but also mean something opposite. It can get really confusing. Homophone. Homophone. Yeah. But they but they have opposite meanings, right? Well, yeah, homophone means. <laughs> we don't need to. Homophone is just because it sounds the same, but. But it means something. But I'm thinking of there's a there's a there's a linguistic category for words that sound exactly the same but mean the opposite. Yeah, 
Yes, there is, and I should know that because there. I have a whole form on it, and I can't think of it. <laughs> there are homonyms and antonyms. Is that what we're talking Maybe. about? Antonyms are opposite. Yeah, they're opposite, but they're yeah. not necessarily um, the same. Synonyms are the same. Homon homophones sound the same, but they might be spelled differently, like there, there, and there. Right. And then, yeah. Or right, right. Or right and right. right. Yeah. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> Um, I'm glad I grew up speaking English and, and don't. The kids in Korea we were trying to teach, boy, I don't envy them. Um, learning English? Yeah, they all have to learn English starting in third grade. It's not easy. So, uh, oh yeah, so number one, biblical precedent for confession. We have Second Samuel, David not only uh, uh, sleeps with Bathsheba, but kills her husband in the process, right? And then Nathan, and he doesn't even really understand or seem to understand that it's wrong. Nathan is the one who has to, through the use of a story about a man and his poor little lambs, right, has to remind David of what he's done. And so David is outraged at this story, and then David realizes, you are the man. First um, John 8 through 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Back to the theme of self-deception. And the truth is not in us. Uh, and then Matthew 16, you are Peter upon on this rock, I will build my church. Matthew 18, again, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then John 20, kind of the idea of the office of the keys. So confession has uh, two parts that we confess, and second, that we receive absolution, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Um, so the absolution is really the far more important part. And what we understand by the office of the keys uh, down on 6, the authority that Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive and bind sins, we kind of understand that it's given to the church in total, and then the pastor exercises it, uh, is ordained, and then exercises it on behalf of the people in kind of a, in a public, more authoritative manner as we exercise on Sunday mornings. When we don't say, um, your sins have been forgiven, your sins are forgiven, we see, I forgive you, standing in the place of Christ, um, which is why you do things like wearing an all is a, a robe is a good idea so you can get your personality out of the way so if you're wearing your Husker shirt from the big victory the <laughs> night before not that that would ever happen but that's not going to distract anybody uh, from seeing Jesus right? which is why if your pastor has curly hair they should really cut it so it's less of a distraction and you see Jesus and not the pastor that's that's the idea right um, oh, the, the white robe y'all covers your, the pastor's human characteristics. True, yes, yeah. absolutely. And so you're, you sort of have that symbol there of, of Christ standing right. in, in your place. Uh, right. And you just happen to be saying the words. Right, correct, absolutely. Yeah, Christ is standing in my place, and I just, or I'm standing in Christ's place, and I just happen to be the mouthpiece, the voice. Right? How do the words go in the power vested in me? Yeah. As a caller and servant, uh, I, uh, boy. <laughs> I should have this memorized. Well, there are two or three paragraphs in my life. I should know that one, but, right? But I always thought that was really interesting because that's been passed through the generations. Right. I keep thinking back about Christ telling his disciples, you know, those who forgive, forgive, and those that aren't, aren't. And, and it's like that's that's gone all the way, all the way through. Right. Uh, with the power vested in you. I mean, somebody has laid hands on you. Right. To, uh, to and do it's. It. Yeah, and it's not just a nice idea or uh, uh, it's a present reality, in the present tense, you know. Um, 
Yeah. All right. Um, that doesn't mean that Christians don't also forgive one another, right? Uh, in in the, the priesthood of all believers, we would say that it's kind of a both and, right? The pastor does it um, publicly on behalf of the on behalf of the church. The church has kind of given him this role, or we should say, God through the church. Um, and then Christians do it um, privately in their lives, exercising this key by, by uh, forgiving. Um, there are all kinds of ways, and we can go on many different digressions about uh, cancel culture and ways that cancel culture is actually good. It's deeply moral, right? People uh, are, are offended by wrongdoing and want to make that clear and obvious. The problem, though, is it seems that once someone's been canceled, there's, there's no real way to be forgiven or atoned for their sins. And I suppose you'd say in the case of someone like Harvey Weinstein, right, was worthy of not only cancellation, as we call it, but also jail time, right? And so uh, in the other case of anybody else being canceled, whatever canceled means, um, it's interesting. I mean, what's, what's the method for it? How do you atone for your sins? How are you forgiven in the kind of culture at large? Is there forgiveness? I don't know. That's not a question I can answer, but it does seem to me that there's a lot of morality that actually makes sense, but then there's a kind of lack of, of any kind of forgiveness that you could achieve in the, in the kind of cultural space. Um, who is that cookbook author? Paula Dean. <laughs> no, no, she's great. Did she get canceled? Yeah. Okay. What is she, like, wow. probably we maybe shouldn't go here. What did she get canceled for? I think I think she was a little loose with some racial epithets. <laughs> right. And can you is it possible culturally to be forgiven for that? I don't know. Um, the other Allison Roman. Anybody ever heard of the name Allison Roman? Nope. She, she was writing for the New York Times and made a comment about, I think it was Chrissy Teigen or someone who was also writing a cookbook and, and um, made some comment about her being an Asian American and the New York Times dropped her. And um, she didn't even use any racial terms, um, but some comment that connected that and it was over pretty quick, right? So that's just a broader cultural uh, thing. I think, you know, the way that we deal with the reality of wrongdoing, we can shift the blame, do whatever, um, really just needs to be confessed and forgiven. And you may not find forgiveness in the culture. Um, so number five, uh, what's the difference between individual confession and corporate? Well, corporate confessions at the beginning of every service, reminding of us our continual need to rely on God's forgiveness for Jesus. And individual confession absolution can be practiced at any time. It may be an especially good Lenten or Advent practice, um, but is uh, appropriate when a specific sin is burdening uh, your, your conscience. And then, what's the opposite of the keys? The authority is given to bind and loose. Why might the church, on page two, uh, oh, I need to scroll down, Linda, sorry. Thank you. Uh, right here in ABC, 6 ABC. Why might the church, and the pastor, I guess, in particular, but usually the church is the one that votes to excommunicate. Why might that be necessary or even a good thing? So is that what bind someone's sin is? is right. Make, you make say them not part of the church. Right, and it's more it's more public, and we can talk about it more next week. And well, we don't meet next week. Okay. Um, next week I'm gone. Uh, we do meet two weeks from tonight for our last class. So, um, 
two weeks where you talk about communion, usually the first step, if somebody is, is living in unrepentant sin, so I'm trying to think of an example. Somebody that somebody is continually stealing money from their employer and they don't really think it's that big of a deal. Right? Well, the employer's rich anyway. I need this more than they do. That kind of thing. Somebody in the church knows it, follows Matthew 18, goes and talks to them, tells them they need to stop. Right? And then they bring along, uh, the person doesn't stop, then the person brings along two or three witnesses, uh, according to the pattern set out in Matthew 18, including perhaps the pastor, and then we say, hey, this, this behavior really needs to stop, this is harming people, this is even harming your soul, right, to continue to steal this money or whatever it may be. And then at that point, if they're still unrepentant, um, then usually there's what's called the minor ban, um, which is not not giving them communion because of their unrepentance. Okay. So you're actually putting your your soul in a, in a your soul's in danger. Okay. And through unrepentant sin that is willful, you can become hardened to that sin. So we need to somehow, and again, it's easy for me to say. I've never had to do it. Wake them up to the reality of that sin. Right. So the first step. Yeah, go for it, Linda. And this is what you were addressing in your Sunday sermon to some extent, was it not? The what? forgiving of... <laughs> what did um, I preach about on Sunday? Approaching, um, approaching someone who you believe is sinning and asking them to stop, essentially. Yes, yeah, so being a watchman. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. it was, Ezekiel 33, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, so being a watchman and that we're all accountable to one another... And that text is pretty striking because for Ezekiel, it's saying if you don't warn them, then I'll hold I'll hold their blood on on, on your account, right? I'll hold you responsible for their sin, right? Um, yeah. So for something like you're talking about, somebody might say, well, you know, yeah, I, you're right. I'm really sorry for what I did. I, I really want to, you know, confess absolution and all that bad jazz. Yeah. But then, what that, the, the real issue is. What are you going to do about that sin that you've confessed and you've received absolution? What are you going to change in your life to make sure you don't go back? To that? Right. The guy right. keeps going back to that. You know, that's that's the issue. Uh-huh. It, so, you know, somebody gets to that point where, where, where they don't understand that absolution means that you need to change something. And you just don't change it. Willfully, just don't change it. That's a really good, that's a big issue in my mind. Right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make a small distinction which said between absolution is a free forgiveness mm-hmm. and then that, that they change their for, I'll put it I'll put it this way, their forgiveness is not dependent on them changing no. the behavior. But they should still change the behavior. Yeah. And if it and if it continues and they continue to fall back into it then and I don't know, if something discreet like stealing um, and this, I'm thinking of other sins. Yeah, and something like a real addiction. If somebody's really struggling with alcohol or another substance, and they just can't break the habit, that might be something different. Because of course it's sin, but it also might need to be treated differently. Right. Right. That's right. Does that make Does that make sense? Well, that's yeah. part of what I'm saying. Now, what are you going to do? About it? Yeah. To make sure that doesn't happen again. Right. You know. And it's, it's, I've run across that situation yeah. before. It's just like, how many how many times do we got to put up with this uh, really uh, absolution business with this guy? Well, you should come to church on Sunday because <laughs> Jesus says seven times seven, yeah. and that well, seems like a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, James. 
isn't the like the classic example of living in sin adultery like yeah. I, I we had a family friend that went to a Catholic church back home and they were getting divorced and living with somebody else and the divorce wasn't finalized from a legal standpoint and their their uh, parish would not administer the Eucharist right and how did that situation resolve uh, it engendered resentment from the church goer as, uh, as far as like when yeah. did they actually allow her to take communion again I don't know okay yeah yeah I mean in some sense that I mean I Roman Catholics are going to have a different understanding of divorce and remarriage than we would in some sense. Right. But I think that's, if, if it's not finalized and they're living with somebody else, that's probably, might be an appropriate conversation to have and say. Um, and I think ultimately it's uh, it's a concern for their soul, that, they're, that they're, their sin is already damaging their soul to some point. If it continues to be willful and if you continue to take the Lord's Supper, um, you're almost you're almost doubling down on the sin, right? And that's what Paul says in First Corinthians that you're actually harmed by it if you're in such a such an unrepentant state. Um, so that might be to point C. What that might be the time when it's excommunication, which removing somebody from membership has to happen by the whole congregation, right? So the pastor themselves, typically as it works, can make a decision, and often it's because the pastor might be the only one who knows, and you're not just going to broadcast what's been going on, right? Um, but when it gets to be the point of excommunication, it's saying, it's, and it's always for the purpose of restoration, ultimately, not to give away the question. The purpose is to bring them back into the fold um, because it's saying this sin is so dangerous to you that uh, we're trying to wake, wake you up to the reality of it, which is, you know, Daryl, church historian, has anybody ever been excommunicated? Uh, we don't need to know if anybody's ever been excommunicated here. Um, it can happen. It does happen. It's not very frequent. I would say especially today when, how do I put it, church is more voluntary than ever. People don't have the wrong, people have, I think, fewer wrong motivations to be at church than maybe they did 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right. But, of course, the church is still full of sinners, so it may become a necessity. All right. Any we're we're way past time. Any questions on any of that? To, to Gene's point earlier, I, it's it's my feeling that in in my confession, I am also asking for help to change my behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't negate the forgiveness that right. I receive through you from Christ. Even though the next week I am asking for forgiveness for that same sin, whatever right. it may be, and uh, but I, I want to do that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a there's a um, I thought there was a prayer in here about that, um, but there's a it's not it's not a burden the same way, right? You want to do better, but you know if you don't, then you'll be forgiven. Right, so it's not this kind of crushing weight in the way it maybe was for Luther to never <clears throat> have the wrong thoughts about God or something like that, if I can put it that way. Any last thoughts, comments, questions there? If not, uh, I'll stop sharing. And Linda, I'll ask you to mute. And we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. So no class next week. And I should...
Remember to text Tim and Patty. And who else has been in this class? Sharon Delmore. Sharon Delmore, that's right. But she'll probably already know, but it wouldn't hurt to text her. Yes, she probably will. So no class next week, and then two weeks from tonight on the 26th will be the last class on the Lord's Supper. So we'll try and cram in a lot there. That'll be, uh, we'll see how we do. I uh, will try and remain optimistic about doing that all. Uh, about class. All right, let us, uh, let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Take care, Linda. Oh, bye, Linda. I wonder why Catholics never say, for thine is that those last two verses in the Lord's Prayer. So, yeah, that's.